0: You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open-access electronic journal Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net. Adrian Jans is the Alan Grant McLear Professor in the Department of History at the University of Chicago, where he also chairs the Committee on Conceptual and Historical Studies of Science. He's the author of Death of a Pirate, British Radio and the Making of the Information Age, from 2010, Piracy, the Intellectual Property Wars from Gutenberg to Gates, from 2009, and The Nature of the Book, Printer Knowledge in the Making, 1998. He's also written widely on the histories of science, the book, media and information. So the first question, um, Adrian, if you look back at your career as a researcher, In what way have you seen your research practices change, or not, over the years, in your interactions with new media and digital tools? And to what extent is your own development in this respect exemplary for changing research practices within the humanities as a whole, do you think? Okay, well, thank you very much, first of all, for just
1: having me on this.
0: Um, To what extent have
1: my research practices changed through interactions with new media? This is actually an interesting question, partly because... I started doing a PhD in 1987, mm-hmm. which was obviously before big digitization, um, but the digital existed then. So by the time I started doing a PhD, I would be coming into the uh, computer labs in Cambridge to do word processing on mm-hmm. what were then, um, if I remember right. Um, very early generation Apple Macintoshes hooked into a mainframe computer called Phoenix. Um, and so all the, from, from that point onwards, I've gone I've gone through the generation which saw email go from essentially zero to completely overwhelming. Um, and I've gone through the rise of Google Books, the mass digitization projects, the internetization of all of our conversations. Um, and it's obviously the case that all research practices have been transformed by these, in some ways, kind of obviously. Like I can sit in my office and very quickly have access to massive amounts of page images from 17th century books that back when I was doing a PhD, you either had to find in the original, or actually more likely you would look up a microfilm. Mm. And in some senses, that the world of microfilm is a world that we've tended to forget. Yeah. It, for, it dominated for a generation. And when I was doing a PhD, I came into the library um, every day, six days a week, wow. and did nothing but sit in a dark room and look at microfilms. And it really made you feel ill. I mean, it had a kind of physiological effect. You would come out feeling nauseous at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, for certain things you still have to do that, but I haven't looked at the microfilm reader now for at least a year. Um, so everything I do now can be done... Well, not, not everything. But lots of things can be done from the office. Mm. That's one thing. The other thing is, that, though, that I think that there's a sense in which the ease and ubiquity of those resources now draws our attention more to the things that are not easy and ubiquitous to find. So, um, in my field, that often means looking for the copies of books that are unique because of what readers have written in the margins. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think and there's even a school of thought that if there's a future to libraries, it lies in the collection of those because mm. nobody's ever going to digitise you know, every copy that somebody's written in of some Renaissance book. Um, but every trace that's left by a reader tells you something. Yeah. So so in a certain sense, the, the ubiquity um, changes the epistemic status of what were once thought to be one's major primary sources. So it used to be that when we go into rare books rooms, and the point was to look at, say, you know, a 17th century printing of Milton. And now it's much more the case that you're going in not to look at the 17th century printing of Milton because that's what you do before you do your actual research. You get that from Google Books or from Ebo or something. Um, and what you think of as your original act of research is to look at what's unique about the particular object of, of Milton. It's become almost more like um, uh, an object orientated activity not in the coding sense but in the Mm -hmm. sense of something like uh, museum research or or anthropology or something like that Um, so there's that to what extent is my own development exemplary i think of it as exemplary just in the sense that i'm in the same generation that's gone through all of this Um, it's not exemplary of what people are doing now because i don't in fact or haven't yet at least um, done anything serious to do with big algorithmic mm-hmm. investigations so um, I haven't r- made any kind of serious use of things like natural, angri- la- natural language processing algorithms or or machine reading techniques or anything like that it's not that I couldn't and it's not that I, I don't see that there's a role for them um, pr- pr- you know, I, I do think that actually they're going to transform the discipline in the next mm. decade it's that I haven't myself done that yet Um, And to a certain extent, from the people that I collaborate with who do do it, my sense is that while big original uh, consequential questions are being asked with those tools, there's still a problem with them in that the tools themselves are not second nature Mm -hmm. to researchers. We need them to become second nature through a process. In the same way that things like word processing became second nature to us through a process. When when word processors first arrived, they were not second nature to people. And people had to learn how to use them creatively and just to kind of, as it were, think through the screen.
0: Hmm.
1: And we need to get to that point with things like um, algorithmic methods for tackling big data archives. I think we're not quite there yet. We will be there in 10 years. Um, And I, I would hope that I'd be part of that, but I'm not yet.
0: All right. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to the second question. So um, we could say that the past can be shaped from the present in myriad of ways. So throughout your work, but especially in texts such as the nature of the book and piracy, the intellectual property laws from Gutenberg to Gates, you explore the efforts of historical institutions and protagonists alike to seize upon history in order to redefine the past and through doing so affect the present and the future. So, in the nature of the book you see this kind of recursive historiographical work, as you call it, in operation in a dispute between the Royal Society and the Stationers over the historical origins of print in the 17th century, for example. Now, for similar reasons you have focused on the revisionist history of print media as advocated by digital printing company forces during the piracy case that surrounded digitization of Japanese in the 1980s to 2000s, as you described in your article Gutenberg and the Samurai. Now, could you reflect briefly on the historiographical mechanisms employed in these two cases and their influence on the development of book, print and digital media?
1: Yes, thank you for asking that. This whole question of how it is that historical understandings play in, in, in a kind of recursive way, uh, into the, the constitution of things like new media is very interesting mm. to me. Um, <laughs> and it's it's partly... What can I say? Being a historian myself, I'm always keen to see an importance in what one does. Um, But it's not just that. I think that um, very often when you push at people who are doing new things, they're having to justify to themselves what the newness is of what they're doing in terms of how they understand what already exists. And that is to tell a historical story. Um, Even if the historical story is actually quite simple, but again, as soon as you probe at that again, if you if you in conversation with them and you, you push at it, the simple becomes complex pretty quickly. Um, and it's not that the historical stories that are told in such circumstances are, are by professional historians' lights true, or that they're false necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's that they're consequential. Um, you know, they come about through creative interpretation of evidence of various kinds. Sure. They're deployed, and they shape how people act and how they respond to others' actions. So in the two cases that you've highlighted, in the 17th century, um, there was a big debate in, in England. And actually, the, this has parallels in every other European country, too. I happen to do England because it's what I know. But you could do the same story, very similar, very similar story, in France or Spain or some, some German states. Um, there's a big debate about what the ground for harmony or community in the world of print is where the stationers' company, which was more or less the guild for, for the printing industry, thought that the grounds of harmony lay in the community of a craft yeah. body. Uh, so it's in the fraternal organisation of artisans. And that built up a tradition over time. So the thing is essentially traditional-based. But for certain uh, gentlemen, and to some extent for those in the Royal Society, that harmony was not a beneficial one, um, it's seen as being entirely in the interest of the, the commercial practitioners of the mm-hmm. book and not in the interest of scholars or the state or of, or of the broader social harmony of the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to reconstruct the harmony of, of the world of print around especially royal power that would be deployed through the mechanism of privileges, what we call patents. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a very complicated battle and, I, and both sides fought it out by making stories about the historical development of print culture itself, as we might call it, that go right back to Gutenberg. Mm -hmm. Um, And interestingly, a large part of the debate there has to do with certain kinds of textual evidence. There's an interesting moment when both sides actually were arguing on the basis of key foundational documents that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But neither side could point out that the other side's document didn't exist because they were keenly aware that their own document didn't exist, (laughs) and they couldn't be sure that the other one didn't. Um, And this has to do with the location of the document. So one of them was in the guild headquarters, if it existed, and the other one would have been somewhere buried in the, probably Lambeth Palace, actually, the headquarters of the Archbishop of Canterbury, but nobody knew. Um, And that's a a very interesting moment, when both sides are adducing textual evidence, which is like the gold standard of historical understanding, but nobody can actually produce the documents um in the the case of forces which is a an interesting episode that i got rather um preoccupied with for a number of years in the early 2000s um, this was a debate about the proprieties of digitizing japanese kanji characters and forces was at least by its own accounts the first company to do this for all whatever it is forty thousand characters and the way that they did it was by taking what are essentially type sheets from an existing typographic company, having a traditional calligrapher redraw the characters, and then digitising the redrawn characters. And the, the typographic company sued, really knowing that it wasn't going to win, but knowing that the tying up forces in the courts for a long period would be enough to destroy its prospects, mm-hmm. which did actually happen. And there, the histories involved are quite different. They're, they're, they're still histories, but... They're histories of things like big Japanese corporate culture back through into the, the Meiji Restoration and also histories of the grand conceptual structure of media revolutions. Mm-hmm. So the, the head of the forces company was one who, who was building up a, a kind of comprehensive view, which is almost McLuhanite, about the intrinsic nature of media and how, how media work through and structure cultures. Um, so it's different. It's, not, it's It doesn't have that kind of close... Um, almost archival character of the seventeenth century issue, but like that it 's about how it is that new media and the cultures of new media are formulated by thinking historically th- about yeah. by thinking change through time. Um, on the influence of the developments of both print and digital media, I think that my own view is that is that media don 't have intrinsic natures mm-hmm. um, so the nature of something like print or or the digital if there is such thing as the digital, are constantly being reconstrued and re-stipulated. And one of the ways in which that happens is through the artful kind of redeployment of stories about how we got to where we yeah. are now. And that's what's happening in both of those episodes. Okay, yeah. thank
0: you so much. All right. So I would like to develop this conception of recursive historiographical work a little further. So... You write about how others have attempted to reshape history. Could you maybe reflect on your own responsibilities as a historian, especially where they concern the narrating of the past? So how how does the way in which we reflect upon historical struggles and disputes relate to our own ethical position taking as historians? So in what sense are we part of this redefining of the past? So in asking this question, I also have in mind recent developments in historiography, such as media archaeology and feminist rewritings of history, which focus specifically on extracting, for instance, repressed, unconscious and forgotten genealogies. So do you relate to these movements in any way? And how would you describe your own responsibility and performativity even as a historian in reshaping and rewriting the past, present and future?
1: I think that... um You've hit upon something that's absolutely critical here, which is the the ethical status of historical work. If you believe, as I as I do, that there is this this recursive character where his, where historicity plays into the development of the new in media and media cultures, uh, but it's something that that uh, is not reflected upon ex- expressly as often as it should be. Um, and I think there is, there are certain things that one would say about it. One one is that um, I do think that for all that historical work needs to have consequences, it actually will have consequences mm-hmm. willy-nilly, but, but you need to think through what the consequences are and you need to justify the work to some extent in terms of consequences. Um, the only way that you can do that convincingly and actually hope to, to draw people along and convince them that what you're saying actually is true is to go at the history in good faith mm-hmm. so for all that, when I think through something like the 19th century disputes about library provision or something like that I have an eye to the current conflicts over Google Books yeah. I, am the, I only think you can actually have an impact on how people think about Google Books and our current predicament if you go at the 19th century case in good faith and really try to think through the 19th century case in its own terms yeah. Um, to that extent, I'm I'm actually a fan of of Max Weber's idea of science of, as a vocation. Mm-hmm. That there is a moral virtue to at least aspiring to be amoral um, in how you do your research. I don't, so one shouldn't go in immediately thinking I, the point of this is programmatically to argue for a certain position about our current debates. That's not to say that you don't take a position about the current debates. It's that your position. Has to at least to some extent emerge from a good faith historical piece of imagination that 's where one gets to the business about uh, performativity and recovering lost or suppressed voices. I am actually romantic about this I, I do think in mm-hmm. that one should try to recover um, lost or repressed voices, and for all it 's worth, um, you know way back when when I, so- I, I started out as a scientist as an undergraduate, mm-hmm. and one of the things that converted me away from doing the sciences and i can remember actually coming across this book in a bookstore in a provincial town called chichester in england um but i came across the the book by christopher hill called the world turned upside down which for people who do 17th century england is is a real epochal book it was the the book that really um did the the work of recovering lost voices in this case of minority sects and, and political movements in the English Revolution, the 1640s and 50s. Um, and I can remember coming across this book in the shelf and pulling it off the shelf and immediately being captivated mm-hmm. by it, by the idea that, that you could go back and you could, um, in a certain sense, kind of restore the voices of these, these people. Um, so I do see myself as doing this. I tend to pay close attention to to figures in the past who might, to us, seem eccentric or... Um, all kind of self-evidently absurd. Um, so I like people who are wrong, you know, by our lights. Um, and it's it's in the in the old sense of prove. This is how you prove the rule, right? Is by finding people who really tested it by almost being as wrong as possible. Mm-hmm. And you have to try to reco- you have to try to recover what it was was rat- that was rational in their eyes about what they were doing. That's the historical imagination mm-hmm. part of it. On the other hand, um, I don't think you can judge which voices deserve to be recovered by which ones seem to us to be sympathetic. And this is, to some extent, where I have a problem with some of the the work that's focused on race, class, gender, especially in the United States. You see this a lot in the United States, where there's there's a a kind of sense that recovering, say, the voices of working-class women from the 19th century is self-evidently justified. Mm. right? You don't have to do a work of justifying it. Whereas if you're going to recover the work of something like a reactionary romantic from the 1820s, you mm. have to justify that sure. because it doesn't appeal to us. And I don't like that asymmetry. Mm. Um, apart from the else, I think there's a big risk of a kind of essentialism which defeats the whole purpose of the enterprise, actually. Performativity, sure. um, for this is the idea that um, in a certain sense, by producing historical knowledge that has this kind of ambition to shape how we think of our own predicament you shape what our own predicament actually is mm-hmm. because people put it into action sure. by, by uh, kind of instantiating what you say you know what can i say i i i would dearly like it to be true that as an academic historian i write things that people believe and then in a certain sense act on the implications of the stories um and those implications are anti-determinist. Mm-hmm. So so it would involve, for example, not producing policies for the future of the humanities which are premised on a story about the inevitability of the triumph of certain kinds of okay. network culture, say. Um, I think that the humanities should take it upon themselves to be managerial about networks as well as being as well as being their you know, beneficiaries mm-hmm. in a certain way. Um so I, I would like to have that kind of performativity and and I do think that, in a certain sense, one should write as though that performativity exists i 'm not so sure that in practice at least in the short term, it does. Mm. Part of that is because of the changing character of university institutions. If you think that one 's ambition is to be performative with respect to the future of intellectual culture yeah. s- specifically and there you know, in the u k as in the u s the nature of universities has changed they 've become much more managerial administrative subject to a whole cast of of administrators whose backgrounds are not in academic research so much as in things like business schools their language is very different from ours um and in order to be performative you would have to translate the kind of research that i do into the language of business schools Mm. which i'm not kind of in principle opposed to doing um but i haven't done it you know so it's I think it would hang on on somebody actually choosing to, to, to adopt that as a strategy, I think.
0: In your work you write about how the coming of new technology, so be it print or digital, brings with it a certain indeterminacy towards the propriety of established relations surrounding that technology, so due to the fact that it takes some time for these relations to settle again in response to the changes in technology. So you see this response to change at work in a current heavy policing of copyright and piracy in a digital context. For example, as you described them in piracy, the intellectual property was from Gutenberg to Gates. So in this respect, media change is instrumental in redefining the relationship between technology, science and knowledge and the practices of people and institutions. So I was wondering, and you already discussed this in the first question too a bit, how this relates to our own communication practices as scholars. To what extent does the digital raise fundamental questions of propriety and responsibility with respect to the way we conduct history and scholarship more specifically? So, for the most part, do we not continue to act as if we were still in the Gutenberg galaxy?
1: Um, I'm afraid we do continue to act that way. Um, to a certain extent, I think it has virtues acting that way, mm. to be honest. I, I, I think that, um, for example... I think that doing good historical work is a process that involves reflection, and reflection takes time. Um, so I'm a little resistant to the culture where which expects that um, people like me should have immediate responses to mm-hmm. everything. Um, so I don't blog and I don't tweet or anything like that, which is not you know deliberate yeah. strategy not to do it. It's just that I'm I'm a little reluctant to get sucked into a world where it's expected of me sure. to do that. And I'd rather sit, you know, it's not that I have time to sit back and think about things, but, um, but I'd rather have a have a world where one can um, take time to work through problems. Um, this is again to say, though, that that I think it's part of the responsibility of the academic world today, not simply to see itself as being impacted by the world of digital networks, but to take the responsibility to manage them. Um, and actually put them to use in certain ways and not in others, right? Don't don't um, adopt the principle that speed is everything because mm-hmm. it isn't. Um, there are, though, issues other than speed where I think that um, academia could be more successful and more imaginative than it is. And in some ways, British academia has been better at this than American, um, partly because... I think it's because it exists under greater constraints, so it has to be more imaginative about how it operates. Um, So um, in in certain parts of the academy, and it's not necessarily um, historians, it can be things like climate scientists, statements that were issued out now um, are going to extend much more broadly than they used to in terms of their circulation. And there's not just individual circulation, but then it's, as it were meta-circulation. So... Statements are going to go out into the, the net, and then they're going to be readopted and reappropriation and recirculated in ways that are often not predictable, and they're going to produce feedback, and the feedback is often going to be, you know, crazy and, and uninformative, and hostile, uh, but not always, and it's it's there's an unpredictability to that, um, and I think that that's a huge change from the cozy old world where what people like me did was that they produced academic papers that were published in small circulation professional journals that were read by one's peers and essentially by nobody else mm-hmm. and we we judged each other in a kind of um you know comfortable world where we knew what standards were to some extent um, that world i think is is rather disintegrating um, and it's not entirely clear what's going to replace it that will be respectable and will be kind of worth upholding. Um, but I think it is clear that we can't just cling to that. We can't cling to a world where we circulate things in print to fewer and fewer readers. And we, we, as, we essentially um, take those fewer and fewer readers to be the only qualified judges of what mm-hmm. we do. Um, what does one do with that? Uh, As I say, I think in some ways the British system now where people are much more encouraged to be, as it were, out there in public intellectuals than the American system has, uh, that's a way to go. But on the other hand, that carries risks too because we need to preserve spaces for genuine expertise. Mm -hmm. And genuine expertise, it often has to be actually restrictive. You know, it doesn't have to be secret, but it has to be confidential in a certain sense. There need to be spaces where experts can actually get together and discuss things without the, the constant intervention of the inexpert. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm only a qualified admirer of the idea that everything should be open. Mm. Um, at least, I think everything should be open in the end, but during the processes, the processes need to have a, a place for expertise to really voice itself uh, without fear. And for that, you, you'd actually have to have barriers of some kind, mm. I think. Um, and the question is going to be, wh- how, what are those barriers? How are they formed? And what are the systems of accountability that are put place so that they don't become absolute? Yeah. Um, in some ways, I think the biggest question of all that the digital age presents us is, is the question of accountability. Mm. You know? um, and academia faces that as much as government does. Yeah.
0: Um. You're listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory, To find out more about the open access electronic journal Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net.